This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes in life we're faced with tough choices or dilemmas, and the right path to choose to go forward isn't always clear. It could be a fork in the road of your career, or relationship, all sorts of things, that only you can decide which way to go, because no one knows what's best for you than you yourself, do they? And trusting yourself to make decisions that line up with your values and leave you feeling confident, excited and having chosen wisely is like anything that you attempt. The more you practice, the easier it gets. Now something beneficial that can help you to navigate life's decisions so they're the best ones is therapy. I've had decisions to make plenty of times in the past and I have found that taking that time out and talking to someone, it could even be a complete stranger, helped me no end. Therapy isn't just for Tony Soprano or designed for those trying to overcome trauma in their lives, not at all. Think of it as a way to help you make positive changes, to learn your limits and develop boundaries for yourself, and to give you stepping stones to learn how to cope with things, all the good stuff that helps you be the best version of you that there is. If you're thinking of trying therapy to help make your life the best one it can be, then better help is a great option to choose. It's designed to be flexible and convenient, and it's entirely online, so it works around you and your schedule. It's also easy to do. It takes just filling out a brief questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist best suited for your needs. If you feel that isn't working for you after a time, then you can simply switch therapists no problem with no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with better help. Visit betterhelp.com slash TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TCE. Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes back to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You reach each time around into a tale or tales of true crime that I do my best to make sure are tales that are often unfamiliar, long forgotten or scarcely believable but all that are true and all that I've scoured the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved black and white rat bag, Peeksy, the true crime enthusiast cat, is as always right by my feet. And the both of us have been waiting for yourselves, the fabulous enthusiasts that make the show go around the most important part of our true crime triangle. It is as wonderful as always you joining us today, which means the world, and I hope as you have, then you've joined us with you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. First one back after the Patreon week of the show now then, and with that brings me catching up with shoutouts, this time going out to all of the returning Patreon supporters, plus new friends Hattie Snaith, ML Dunstan, Wendy Lees, The Storm Father, Morium Bartlett, Rupert, James Cameron, Teresa Gort, Chaz P, James McCulloch and Rita Kosnowskate, plus Elaine McKenzie, Alan Stead, Andrea Bell, Wendy Atkinson, Johanna Morton, Sukarita Chakravarthi, John Starr and Julia Pittman who have each opted to annually support the show. You are each a redwood amongst saplings you folks are. You're truly amazing and thank you so much for your kind support of the show. Now you too, that's you folks listening, not the band I absolutely can't stand, though the clown with the shades on Bono can throw me a few quid if he wishes to, like. You also can be like the kind lot I've just mentioned and support the show very reasonably and easily. 
you're more likely to see a postie wearing trousers than get into any difficulty in doing so. Simply head over to Patreon and search for the show there, or just head to the episode show notes and use the link that's with the show contact details always that will take you right to it. Quicker than a Met Copper's WhatsApp history gets deleted, you can find yourself here in the mixed bag of weird, horrific, and in some cases, amusing tales that make up the full series worth plus of unreleased bonus Patreon tales that being a supporter gets you. From the tragedy of an offering to the angels and the horror of wicked beyond belief, to the absurdity of snippets of the strange and stupid, and the complexity of the latest tale that's out, the curse of Withnall Villas, to name just a couple that are available. There is something for everyone there, and depending on your tier, you could be awaiting a thank you package from myself also. This time around on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast then, I bring a tale that we head back to the start of the noughties for, to a city we visited before several times on the show, the city of Liverpool, and for a tale that has echoes well, it does to me anyway, of a couple of past episodes of the show, one fairly recent and a couple of others from previous series, particularly one from Series 7. Featured largely throughout this tale will be the verbatim words of two mothers, one more prominent than the other, but both affected beyond imagination by the terrible crimes that I'm about to depict to you. In part in the episode also is reference to the use of racial slurs. Now I do not include these to offend anybody whatsoever, and my apologies if they do offend, but I shall explain why I've included them when they're referred to. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode that I've entitled Unprotected. By July 2003, at just 25 years old, Pauline Stephen, originally from Netherton in Liverpool, but at the time living in Skelmersdale in Lancashire, with a partner, 35-year-old Mark Ryder, and his 7-year-old son James, had already been working the streets of Liverpool as a sex worker for more than a year, concentrated on the city's Netherfield Road and Crown Street Red Light District, and was known to be street smart and, above all, safety conscious. Though she would often be away for a number of hours soliciting for clients to fund a drug habit, Pauline, who was known on the streets as Portia, would always return home by the early hours, and there was a system in place where she would contact her boyfriend Mark by phone when she was on her way. Such was the case on the evening of Saturday the 12th of July 2003, a normal working night for Pauline, and being the weekend, perhaps a busier one. But this time, Pauline wasn't to return home by the early hours of Sunday the 13th. When she still hadn't returned by the Monday, the worried sister Margie reported her to police as a missing person. They followed an anxious few days, with no sign of Pauline, and by Friday the 18th of July, the worried family members appeared at a press conference, where a tearful mother, Pat Brown, who was caring for Pauline's distraught son James, told the gathered media that she feared her daughter was dead, saying, I feel sick, 
I can't eat and I haven't slept for four days. I don't even know what to say to the little fella. This is totally out of character for Pauline. She fought for eight years to keep that child. He is her world. She wouldn't just run off and leave him. She idolises her son. She has problems, but she's a lovely person and I just want her to come home. We've not heard from her for nearly a week. We can only think the worst. I fear she's dead because it's been too long without any contact, especially with her son. Pauline's sister Margie also appealed. Pauline, if you're hearing this, we're all worried about you and your baby is asking for you. Can you please contact me or your mum as soon as possible? Detective Inspector Brian Quinn of Skelmersdale Police added, Like her family, we are increasingly concerned for her safety. There are inherent risks in working as a prostitute, but Pauline knew the area well and she was pretty streetwise. We now urgently need to trace her and are appealing for anyone with information to come forward. He then issued a description of Pauline, five feet four inches tall, with blue eyes, of slim build, with very long straight blonde hair, worn tied back. When last seen, she'd been wearing a beige jacket trimmed with black fur and lace, multicoloured miniskirt, and knee-high black boots, and had set off in her white Ford Escort estate car, registration number G267UEU. Now, only the following day, Pauline's car was discovered parked alongside an alleyway on a street called St. Domingo Vale in the Everton area of Liverpool, and police began questioning residents around the area and performing cursory searches, the following day knocking on the door of one woman who had a story to tell them. She'd seen police searching the gardens, and having noticed a very strong smell coming from some bin bags in the alleyway, alerted police to this, her 13-year-old son directing them to it. The woman, who asked not to be named, said later, My son took the police to the alleyway. He said there were about three or four bags there. It's really shaking him up, and he hasn't eaten since. He's round at his friends tonight, and is not talking to anyone about it. We are all absolutely terrified. It's a terrible thing to happen, and none of us can really believe it. The following morning, a spokesperson for Merseyside Police said, Police have been searching an alleyway in the Everton area and have recovered human body parts. It's not known whether they're female or male. In the alleyway, buried under other discarded rubbish, Police had discovered several bin bags filled with human remains, and due to the proximity of her car to the scene, suspected that they'd sadly found the remains of the missing Pauline, and began the footings of a murder inquiry. But the results of the post-mortem the following day, following the discovery of Pauline's dumped clothing nearby, stopped hardened officers dead in their tracks. So badly mutilated were the body parts that visual identification would be impossible. It would rely on a combination of fingerprints, DNA testing, dental records and distinguishing features such as scars or tattoos. But worse still, the post-mortem examinations confirmed there were parts from two different bodies dumped inside the bags. Both bodies had been chopped up and mixed together in the bin liners. Horror beyond belief, eh? 
Now, one of the bodies was quickly identified by DNA testing as indeed being that of Pauline Stephen. But as to the other, there was no idea, and a search through missing persons files and criminal records began. By that evening, however, fingerprints had matched the second body to a person, and the second woman had a name. Despite her demons, 19-year-old Hanan Parry lived up to her name. Hanan means kindness in Arabic. She was a quiet, gentle and happy girl who grew up in an immaculate semi-detached home in Broughton, near Chester, where her mother Diane still lives today, at the time with her second husband and their three younger children. Hanan's father is Libyan, and he and Diane split up when Hanan was small, and he went back to Libya. Now, Hanan was happy at her primary school, Broughton Junior School, but when she started secondary school, attending St. David's High School in Saltney, everything changed for her, because in the predominantly white area where the family lived, Hanan's browner skin stood out and she was subjected to vile and misguided racial abuse. Mother Diane recalled in an interview with the Liverpool Echo newspaper, She was a tiny girl less than five foot tall and very slim. She begged me not to make her go to school, but I always insisted that she went. I thought she was miserable because a few girls were being bitchy to her, but what I didn't know until much later was that she was constantly subjected to racist abuse from one particular group at the school, who threw stones at her, who called her Packy, and who even chanted, Trigger, trigger, shoot the nigger. Do you know what it's like when your daughter is too ashamed to open the front door with her hair down because she says it's afro? Because she was so ashamed of where she came from? One of the worst things for me now as a white mother is knowing that I put Hanan on this earth. She didn't ask to be born and she suffered so much because of her skin colour. I found this a heartbreaking recollection. No mother should ever feel guilt for putting their child on earth, surely, and to be left feeling like that down to the vile, ill-informed abuse from a mindless few. I added the offensive slur terms into the episode, as I said at the start, not to shock or offend, but to emphasise just how cruel and stupid pathetic children can be. They can just be vile scum, can't they? And imagine how hearing such slurs must have felt. My heart went out to the poor girl here, for bullying and racism are some things I particularly despise. There is no place for either on this earth. At the age of 16, in 2000, having left school, Hanan decided to move into a hostel for single people in Rill, where she could be more independent. Diane explained, we loved each other to bits, but there were clashes at home because I insisted on certain rules about what time she should be home in the evenings, and she always wanted to stay out later. I thought it was just a normal teenage thing. Sadly, soon after Hanan moved into the hostel, she was introduced to heroin. Diane recalled. Hanan always told me everything. She said that taking heroin made her feel better about everything. At last, she no longer cared about her colour or anything else. I was very unhappy about what she was doing, but I was convinced it was just a phase which she'd come out of. She tried to shoplift a couple of times to fund her drug habit, but she was absolutely hopeless at it and got caught. 
At this point in her recollection, Diane laughed in the kind of way that a person could tip over into tears at any moment, you know, before giving an example of her daughter's good nature and generosity, despite her demons. When she was 17, I bought her a new pair of trainers, but she gave them to a homeless man and said he needed them more than she did. As with so many others who go down this path, Anan soon turned to sex work to fund a £100 a day habit. Although Diane was distraught about the direction Hanan's life had taken, her conviction that this was only something temporary helped her cope. She continued, Hanan was the most naive person you could meet. I was naive too. I thought she would be like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman and live happily ever after. I believed she would suddenly wake up one morning see sense and come back home to us. I'd always assumed that prostitutes and drug addicts had made a choice to be part of that world, but now I know it's not as simple as that. Anan used drugs to escape from the misery of being bullied at school. Anan had told Diane that sometimes people who lived near her in Rill, where she'd worked briefly after she'd left home, shouted out abuse in the street to her, Diane saying, First, she got called Packy, then Smackhead. I couldn't bear the thought of people calling her Slag as well, so I kept it a secret from everyone what she was doing. I didn't tell any friends or neighbours that she was using drugs or that she was involved in prostitution, not because I was ashamed of what she was doing, but because I always assumed she'd be coming back home soon and that it would be easier for her to get on with her life post-drugs and prostitution if people weren't judging her on the basis of those things. By age 19, having lived and worked for six months previously in Birmingham, Hanan was living with a couple in the Anfield area of Liverpool and was sex working mainly in the Netherfield Road and Crown Street area, though also had friends in other red light districts. It's been suggested, but it is unclear, that one of these friends was Pauline Stephen. But it's a dangerous business is sex work, and often Hanan would be attacked on the street, seen as an easy target. The woman who lived with Hanan in Anfield said later, She's been in Liverpool for about a year and moved in with us around six months ago. Hanan was lovely and a really kind and sweet girl who would go out of her way to help people, but she was very fragile and would come home covered in bruises after being attacked. Anan thought she would be killed, but she just couldn't get out of the life she was in because she had a drug problem. It was a real shame because she was very bright. She was like a little girl who needed looking after, and we just cannot believe she's gone. Everyone who knew her is devastated by this, and things have to be done to make the area safer. As she was now in Liverpool, Hanan visited home less and less, but stayed in regular touch with Diane by phone. Diane explained, You can't have a relationship with heroin and your family at the same time, but she was always phoning me and saying, Hi mum, I'm just calling to let you know I'm alright, because I know you worry. The last time she called me was two weeks before she died, on a friend's mobile phone. Hanan had gone out working her usual beat at 2pm on Friday July the 11th and like Pauline had failed to return but sadly 
no one appeared to notice something was wrong and police were not notified of her disappearance at that stage. There wasn't a single trace of Hanan for another 10 days until it was discovered that hers were the remains of the second body mixed in with Pauline's. She'd been identified through fingerprints, though an exact cause of death could not be determined because her body was too badly mutilated. Two women cut into pieces, stuffed into bin bags and dumped in an alleyway, thrown out like rubbish. Pauline Stephen and Hanan Parry suffered untold horror in their final moments. Diane later paid tribute to her daughter, saying, Hanan was an extremely kind-hearted, generous girl and close to her brothers and sister, who were unbelievably shocked by her death. She was a beautiful girl at the start of her life and had a shy, unassuming nature. I would describe her as a free spirit who was headstrong and liked her own company, and all of her friends at home will miss her a great deal. Myself and the rest of her family are absolutely devastated by the news of her death. A school friend of Hanan's, Suzanne Fairman, commented that there had been no indication Hanan was involved in sex work and was shocked at the revelation she had been, saying, Two of my best mates who were at Liverpool University saw her when they were out one night. I found out this morning when my mum woke me up. I'm not sure how she found out about it. Hanan was very quiet and really, really nice and very pretty. Some girls are bitchy. She wasn't. Doreen Sims, meanwhile, who used to help out with a playgroup run on the Broughton Junior School site and remembered Hanan as a toddler, recalled, She was really pretty and a good little girl, really attractive. I would say she was beautiful. The mum is a lovely person. It's horrific this has happened to her. It's sad. In this day and age, you're frightened to let your kids out. Now the discovery sent shockwaves through the city and left other women living in fear, for the killings exposed the vulnerability of sex workers in the community and just how easily two young women could be preyed upon. As a result, officers increased patrols in the city's red light areas to reassure residents, liaising with Lynx, a support group for sex workers. Chief Superintendent Mike Langdon, who was area commander for the city centre at the time, advised sex workers not to use the St. Domingo Vale area while the investigation was being conducted, and also issued a general warning for people to stay on main roads and avoid unlit or dark areas, especially secluded footpaths or shortcuts, and not to walk alone at night if possible, saying... We will be handing out personal safety advice and personal attack alarms to prostitutes and encouraging the use of safe routes. Obviously, at the moment, it would be preferable for them not to use unsafe routes to ply their trade. However, Mr Langdon said the force did not want people to be unduly alarmed. Yeah, don't freak out at two chopped up bodies found within the same bin bags at all. Don't worry about it and insisted it was an unusual case. We have only seen two women murdered by strangers in Liverpool in the past 15 years. Now I would debate that myself, because going back 15 years from 2003, I can think of three, I'm pretty certain, and I'm not a bloody chief superintendent. Yet, 
even following the discovery of the body parts, and even after the arrest of the killer, for this was a very rapid investigation, and I will come on to that shortly, girls in the city's red light districts were living in fear, yet were still working. Joe, a 24-year-old who'd been a sex worker for eight years, who worked with Pauline and knew her well, told BBC Radio Merseyside that her friend was always safety conscious, saying, She could pick and choose the people she went with. She was a gorgeous looking girl. She really was gorgeous. She turned down more cars than she got in. She just literally made her money and she went back to where she lived in Skelmersdale. She never hung around more than she had to. Joe added that girls on the streets were extremely scared and that violence from clients was an occupational hazard but she'd carried on taking clients because she needed money for drugs, explaining. I've been thrown out of a first floor window by a client in Kensington. I was very lucky not to have been killed. I've been raped, I've been strangled, but your drug habit's always there. A woman's arms and legs have been cut off and found in a bin bag. There's nothing more frightening when you've got family and friends to think about. But when you've got a drug habit to feed, you take those risks, it's better than robbing people. But at the same time, you're putting your life at risk. You don't know who you're getting into the car with, you don't know whether that's the very last car you're going to get into. It's no words really, is there? No words. A very sad fact. As I said, this was a vast moving investigation indeed, and police got the break they needed only the morning after the discovery, when 24-year-old Ian Corner, from the village of Lydiate in Merseyside, informed officers at a police station in Crosby that his 26-year-old brother Mark, who had a long history of mental illness, had that morning telephoned and confessed to two killings to him with Mark happening to live in the very same street where the body parts were discovered. It was not known where Corner was at that moment, but after detectives surveilled his parents, Billy and Anne-Marie Corner's terraced home through the afternoon, number 46 Dunluce Street in Walton, Mark Corner was determined to be there. At around 9.30pm that evening, armed police surrounded the property, and as officers went to the door, Corner came out holding a knife. After a tense 15 minute standoff, and after being calmed down, Corner was led out of the front door in handcuffs and bundled into a police van, where he was taken away, having been arrested in connection with the discovery of the two women's dismembered bodies in the alleyway. A neighbour, who asked not to be named, recalled, His parents are lovely, they've lived in the street for years. I feel really sorry for them. The son was a bit of a night owl and used to come back to their place at all hours. In the ensuing raid of Corner's first floor flat in St Domingo Vale, where he'd only recently moved to, traces of blood matched to Pauline and Hanan would be found in the bathroom, along with tools that had been used in the murders and mutilation. More of the two women's body parts were also later found hidden in Stanley Park, and some pieces were even found stashed inside Corner's freezer unit. For what purpose, I wouldn't even want to think. His brother Ian, who had informed police of his brother's confession, was himself also later arrested in connection with the murders, but was later released on police bail, and by September the 11th of that year, 
was told he would face no further action. On the 1st of August 2003, 26-year-old Mark Corner appeared at Liverpool Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Hanan Parry and Pauline Stephen, where he spoke only to confirm his name and address before being remanded in custody to await trial. After his first two court appearances, he'd been remanded in custody to Liverpool Prison, but later that month was transferred from there to Ashworth High Security Hospital. At a pre-trial hearing on the 24th of October of that year, Corner stood in the dock of Liverpool Crown Court, flanked by four psychiatric nurses, and denied murder, but pleaded guilty to the manslaughter on or about July the 11th and 12th of Hanan Parry and Pauline Stephen, and spoke in the court only to confirm his plea. Corner's counsel, David Aubrey Casey, told the court, My client has admitted carrying out the killings on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Both Mr Aubrey and prosecuting barrister Gordon Cole Casey called for psychiatric reports on Corner to be compiled before the decision was made on whether to accept this plea or not. For if the Crown didn't accept the diminished responsibility plea, a murder trial could then still go ahead. When Pat Brown heard that Corner may not face a murder trial, she broke down in tears and told the Liverpool Echo, I want him tried for murder. He killed my daughter, cut her up and then put her in a bin bag. I'm fuming that he's pleaded guilty to manslaughter. It's not fair. Pat told the newspaper how she was now bringing up Pauline's eight-year-old son James with her partner, Billy Kirby, and James's Aunt Margie and Uncle Dougie in Netherton, where most of Pauline's family still live today, adding, He's done so well, bless him. Pauline absolutely idolised him. At the end of the day, my grandson has been left without a mum. I have lost my daughter, and her brothers and sisters have lost their sister. I am fuming. I just want justice for my daughter. I stayed away from court because I couldn't bear to look that man in the eye. I am devastated by what's happened in court today. It's just so hard for the whole family. I'm devastated my daughter has been killed and taken away from me and her little boy, but I'll bring him up and look after him now that his mum has gone. He's my number one priority now, and I will have to try to take away the pain which he will feel and do my best by him. Pauline's brother Dougie added, If he gets manslaughter, he'll be getting off lightly. That's what I think, and that's what my mum thinks too. Now on the 13th of October 2003, after Corner was detained in custody, he was assessed by a consultant forensic psychiatrist who expressed the following opinions and confirmed a diagnosis of schizophrenia and psychopathic disorder based upon the following points. Corner was not under disability with respect to court proceedings. Corner did not satisfy the criteria for insanity as he clearly recognised his actions were wrong. Corner described symptoms suggesting an underlying psychotic illness, such which were consistent with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. There was also evidence of early conduct disorder. He met the criteria for both paranoid and schizoid personality disorders. Though Corner gave a history of alcohol and illicit substance abuse, the symptoms of his mental illness persisted in the absence of drugs and alcohol. 
thus indicating that his psychotic symptoms were a product of an underlying mental illness rather than as a result of intoxication. Corner suffered from an abnormality of mind caused by the presence of both mental illness and psychopathic disorder. When Corner appeared at Liverpool Crown Court on the 10th of December 2003 for sentencing, the Crown having accepted the diminished responsibility plea, the court heard that Corner, who suffered hallucinations, was delusional and had violent and sadistic thoughts, believed he was on a divine mission to kill sex workers, where have we heard this before, and was embarking on a modern-day Jack the Ripper-style killing spree when he was caught. He ended the lives of Hanan and Pauline within a 24-hour period, and detectives were certain that he intended to murder more. The families of Hanan Parry and Pauline Stephen wept as Liverpool Crown Court then heard the details of his crimes. David Steer Casey, prosecuting, told the court that in July 2003, Mark Corner, who had a long history of disturbance and psychiatric illness, which I shall come on to detail shortly, killed and mutilated the two vulnerable young women in his first floor Everton flat, murders he began plotting after leaving his mother and father's house and moving into his own flat in St Domingo Vale. Around just a week later, the part-time security guard, who'd frequented sex workers for years, struck for the first time. On Friday, July the 11th, 2003, Corner picked up 19-year-old Hanan on a usual patch, Netherfield Road in Everton, and took her back to his flat, where after having sex with Hanan there, Corner then brutally strangled her, and then bundled her body into the bath, where he then hacked her into pieces with a kitchen knife, then stuffed the pieces into bin bags, and left them in his bathroom. The next morning, the dark urges welled up once again from the recesses of Corner's mind, for he began planning his next killing, and this time bought tools and saws from a local DIY shop. As darkness fell, he returned to Netherfield Road, and now approached Pauline Stephen in the same red light area close to his home. After picking up Pauline, they drove in her car back to his flat, and Corner killed her in the same way after they'd had sex then disposed of her body in the same way he had dealt with Hanan just 24 hours earlier. Corner then placed part of the women's remains into bin bags, it not mattering which piece of who went into which bag, placed some pieces in his freezer, and then carried the bin bags to the alleyway behind his flat, between numbers 34 and 36 St Domingo Vale, and buried them under an existing stack of rubbish. One week later, on Sunday, July the 20th, Merseyside police found the human remains in plastic bin bags in the alley, but they were unaware they involved two bodies. But when Ian Corner went to Crosby Police Station the next morning, he told them that his brother had confessed to him to killing two women and dismembering them. He told police his brother said he'd panicked while disposing of the bodies and had left some of them in Stanley Park near Anfield. Liverpool Football Club's ground. The park was evacuated, sealed off and searched, and the missing body parts were indeed found there with the assistance of a specially trained police dog. Later the same day, Ian Corner again contacted police and told them that his brother had then arrived at their parents' home, 
so after keeping the house under observation for a period of time, at 9.30pm that Monday evening, police went and took Mark Corner into custody. Mr Aubrey said that Corner, who only had one previous conviction for being drunk and disorderly, had been known to psychiatric agencies since the age of 12, and at the time of the offences, told the court he was suffering an abnormality of mind which was untreated schizophrenia, symptomised by auditory hallucinations, delusions of persecution and violent and sadistic thoughts. It substantially impaired his mental responsibility at the time, and he remained a grave danger to the public. The psychiatrist reports that he was suffering from untreated paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the killings was accepted by the prosecution, and sending Corner to continue being detained at High Security Ashworth Hospital indefinitely under the Mental Health Act, presiding Mr Justice Gage told him. The offences occurred on consecutive days in July. Each day, you took a prostitute back to your flat, and after engaging in sexual activity with your victims, you then killed them. These were truly horrendous crimes. The details are gruesome in the extreme, and have no doubt have caused immense distress to relatives and friends of these young women. Afterwards, Pauline's mother Pat said, Hearing what he did was horrific and he's evil. That man should never be near people again, because he's a killer and would do it again. Diane Parry said, how can you cope with body parts stuffed in a bin bag? How do you tell 13, 11 and 8 year old children what that monster has done to their sister, a sister that would have given everything away? If they ever let that monster out, I will get him, personally. I will find him and kill him. I will never let him walk the streets to get any more of my family. The officer who'd led the investigation, Detective Chief Inspector Lol Carr, said, there is no doubt this man would have killed more prostitutes. He took the lives of two women, and there would certainly have been others if we'd not got to him. DCI Carr then praised his team as he described how they'd worked in a living nightmare as they hunted the killer, confronted with horrific scenes as they had to search through both the chopped up body parts of Corner's victims in a squalid alleyway and in Sefton Park, as well as spending a week in and around the flat where Corner had butchered the two women, but had discovered the vital evidence that made the convictions against Corner stick, he furthered. Every officer played a part in catching a man who killed two women and who would have claimed the lives of even more. They were fantastic from the moment the case was opened, and I'm sure every one of them is glad Mark Corner is off the streets. I'll be sending a report about the inquiry to the Chief Constable, and will be saying that they should be given commendations. Indeed, special commendations were later awarded to all officers involved in the investigating team. Now, with Mark Corner's psychiatric history, an inquiry was ordered into why exactly he was on the streets to be able to kill Pauline and Hanan, for as I said, He'd been known to mental health services since the age of 12 and was a community patient of Merseycare NHS Trust. His first contact with mental health services was in October 1989, referred by his GP 
and where he presented as a depressed and unhappy person with frequent absences from school. A year later, in November 1990, he was back there due to possible depression and was seen on four occasions and also interviewed by an education welfare officer due to his failure to attend school for prolonged periods of time and in December 1992 was provided an emergency admission as a residential pupil to a special school. Corner was regularly bodybuilding at this time as he claimed he felt it was the only thing that calmed him down and had also admitted regularly taking a knife into school with the intention of stabbing someone if they got in his way and he'd even shot a friend and his brother in the leg with a modified air pistol just to prove that he could do it, he said, and which he'd been taken into custody for. Over the next two years, Corner was seen on a number of occasions by counsellors and his GP, and was deemed to be suffering from low esteem, paranoia, and an inability to mix, in addition to having a tendency towards violence. When by November 1994 he'd not left the house for the previous two months due to the fact that he felt people were looking at him, upon examination at home by a consultant psychiatrist, he complained of depression, hearing whispers and having thoughts of self-harm and suicide. The psychiatrist's opinion was that he was suffering from agoraphobia consequence upon long-standing depression and social difficulties, and the long-term plan considered for him was attendance at the Oakdale unit for help with his agoraphobia. In February 1995, Corner was first admitted under the care of the mental health team at Fazakley Hospital in Liverpool via the Accident and Emergency Department after he presented as feeling low with a disturbed sleep pattern, aggression and irritability. He reported paranoid thoughts regarding people being in the house at night and claimed to hear voices of people talking in the house though he indicated he'd not been taking his prescribed Prozac medication. He was discharged the following month with a working diagnosis of a depressive illness and prescribed dothiapine and thioridazine, however, failed to attend any scheduled follow-up outpatient appointments. He was admitted to A&E in July 1995 following an overdose of dothiapine, which he admitted he'd done due to strange thoughts and reported homicidal ideas towards other people he was having during this time, indicating his hatred was great enough to harm others, and by March 1996 had been re-referred to the community mental health team following several incidents of self-harm. It was noted during one of these community visits that he enjoyed reading books concerning murder and harboured a morbid fascination with people who had died after they were mutilated, specifically women, and would do anything to go to prison, even if it meant killing someone. He admitted to alcohol abuse and to mugging and stealing to obtain money. He admitted to homicidal thoughts and said that he thought he might act upon them one day because he hated everyone and thought that his hatred might be enough to kill someone. Though he had no thoughts of self-harm at the time, he indicated that if he tried to take his own life again, he would use great violence to do so, and refused any further offer of help, including prescribed medication. The next couple of years saw a repeating pattern of Corner attending his GP for a scale of things, from his excessive drinking, agoraphobia and thoughts of self-harm or suicide, right through to being referred for an urgent medical review due to his excessive weight loss. 
through a combination of obsessive exercise and dieting, Cornwood reportedly lost 13 stones in weight in two years. Yet failing to keep any scheduled outpatient appointments to do with these, and refusing and or resisting any mental health referrals whenever he was seen. By February 2002, Corner was reportedly in employment as a security officer and told his GP that he found it a stressful job due to the need to interact with people, which as a result was disrupting his sleep and appetite pattern, as well as admitting he'd ceased taking his prescribed paroxetine, as though he claimed it helped his anxiety, it didn't his depression. When he visited his GP again on the 6th of August, he told the doctor that he had increased his cannabis use, also using LSD and downers infrequently, and was now having increasing paranoid thoughts and hearing voices through the walls. On the 18th of August, Corner was admitted to the Ferndale unit, Merseycare NHS Trust via the Accident and Emergency Department, when he'd indicated that he could hear the neighbours talking about him through the walls of his property and was taken into police custody after an apparent attempt to remove a kitchen knife and move towards the neighbour's house. After reporting that he was a bodybuilder and was on regular steroids, but admitting to administration of more than the recommended doses, his further auditory hallucinations of voices that he could hear but his family couldn't, and his conviction that cameras were spying on him and his neighbours were talking about him, Corner was detained under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act 1983, with indications following a risk assessment based on what you've heard thus far of his character and behaviour that he was a moderate to severe risk of suicide and violent aggression. Over the next few weeks, as he remained a patient at Ferndale, Corner was noted to be quiet and subdued on the ward, though expressing no thoughts of harm to himself or others and was subsequently regraded to level 2 intermittent observation with a long-term goal of discharge from the unit with relevant community aftercare. On the 27th of August, Corner's consultant psychiatrist Dr Eric Birchall presented a report to the Mental Health Review Tribunal of the opinion that Corner was suffering from a psychotic illness which required further assessment and treatment. He acknowledged that the incident leading to Corner's admission was a very serious one, and that were he to be discharged prematurely, then he would pose a risk to himself and other people, resulting in the Mental Health Review Tribunal's decision being that Corner was not to be discharged in the interests of his own mental health and the protection of others, as he was deemed suffering from schizophrenia with continuing evidence of psychosis and a lack of insight into his condition not stable enough for discharge. Now, just keep that very firmly in the forefront of your mind, okay? Yet, he was eventually allowed a weekend pass home at the beginning of September, which was uneventful, leading to increasing leave throughout the day, both supervised and unsupervised, and further weekend passes. And by the 11th of September, just 14 days after the tribunal's decision, Corner had been regraded to informal status and was discharged from the Ferndale unit with an assessment from then-senior house officer Dr Eric Birchall reporting that his progress on the ward had been rapid and that it was thought that his psychotic phenomena could have been induced by cannabis. Further, Corner was posed as low risk to himself and others and having a good insight into his illness 
with a good prognosis if he remained cannabis-free and remained compliant with his medication, this time prescribed olanzapine. So, totally vault face in the space of two weeks there. Goes from needing to be hospitalised to being fine and, oh, it's down to cannabis use. Yeah, okay. Ten days later, however, Corner was seen in the accident emergency department by a duty psychiatric senior house officer after having taken an overdose of paracetamol, the aim of which he indicated was to aid his sleep. He self-reported a non-compliance with his prescribed olanzapine medication and reported heavy alcohol consumption in the previous few days, yet was merely given a four-day course of Zopiclone and discharged. Shortly afterwards, Corner's father phoned to express concerns that his son was not fit to be discharged, yet he remained as an outpatient. On the 7th of October, Corner attended a scheduled outpatient appointment and was assessed by a senior house officer in psychiatry, where it was again noted that since his discharge from the Ferndale unit, he'd stopped taking his prescribed olanzapine and had resumed significant consumption of alcohol and cannabis. The paranoid thoughts and auditory hallucinations had also returned, and Corner claimed to have started hearing voices again, indicating that the neighbours were talking about him, despite the fact that he'd moved into a new flat. He mentioned also here that he had again threatened a neighbour with a knife, who had called the police and who gave Corner a verbal warning, and though he'd moved back to his parents' home because he was feeling isolated and lonely, and had restarted his olanzapine, he thought his paranoid thoughts had remained. A risk assessment conducted indicated a categorised risk to himself and others as low with a moderate risk of neglect. Though psychiatric outpatient appointments were made for him, Corner was resistant to these and failed to attend each going into 2003, though he was to see his GP a number of times, where his increased alcohol consumption was noted, Corner admitted it was more than 100 units per week, as well as the fact that he admitted to have ceased taking his prescribed medication in October 2002. He was certainly taking plenty of other medication, however, because on the 18th of April 2003, Corner was admitted to the observation ward via accident and emergency department at Aintree Hospital following an overdose of a mixture of the drugs Largactyl, Paroxetine, dihydrocodine and ecstasy, the latter of which he admitted he had been using 60 to 70 tablets of per week for the previous six months. Following his stomach being pumped, and after some time on the observation ward, he was discharged on the 19th of April 2003 to the care of his GP. It was the last reported time Corner had any contact with medical or mental health services before just three months later, on the 21st of July 2003, he was arrested by police on suspicion of murder. Now the history that you've just heard was established by the two inquiries ordered to look into what happened, one by Mersey Care, who was responsible for Corner's care, and another external probe by an outside trust, the Emergency Care Research Institute. Inquiries demanded by his victims' families following Corner's sentencing, and with the full support of local MPs. The findings were published on Friday the 29th of September 2006, more than three years after the murders, 
with copies hand-delivered to Diane and Pat that same morning, and which detailed a series of failures by the Merseycare NHS Trust and other agencies. Finding that they'd failed to identify or deal with the warning signs that Corner's condition had seriously deteriorated. Dr David Fernley, then Medical Director of Merseycare NHS Trust, said the Trust was very aware things could have been done better, saying, Mark Corner's condition deteriorated gradually following his discharge from hospital in 2002. With hindsight, it is clear that important risk factors could have been highlighted by a number of different agencies which dealt with him over that period. Most regrettably, this did not happen. Changes had since been made to all the Trust's monitoring systems and the nine recommendations made in the report had been implemented, eight of which were aimed at Merseycare NHS Trust and included random audits for Merseycare, community psychiatric nurses to be made aware of patients' history before home visits, faster information on dangerous psychiatric patients for hospital emergency departments, better training and close supervision for junior doctors working as psychiatrists. However, Dr Fernley was keen to stress that the report placed the main blame on Corner's psychiatrist, Dr Eric Birchall, for failing to use approved monitoring systems. Dr Fernley added, The consultant, who no longer works for the Trust, has been referred to the GMC. Now, an April 2008 hearing of the GMC, the General Medical Council, would hear the case against Dr Birchall, who was facing misconduct charges and accusations that he'd failed to devise an adequate care plan for Corner. Though experts concluded he was likely to become dangerous if he went back to using alcohol, cannabis and cocaine, and a mental health tribunal ruled that Corner should not be released, senior psychiatrist Birchall had agreed to discharge Corner from the Ferndale Mental Health Unit less than a month later, telling his GP the risk to others was low. Despite knowing Corner was a cannabis smoker, had a history of violence and harboured murderous thoughts. However, at the end of a seven-day hearing in Manchester, a GMC fitness to practice panel ruled Dr Birchall was not guilty of gross misconduct and that he should not be struck off or even warned for a single error of judgment. The ruling said, All human beings make mistakes from time to time. Doctors are no different. Diane Parry told the Liverpool Echo of her anger at the decision, saying, I'm shocked and sad that the GMC has decided to try to sweep this under the carpet. They've said that Dr Birchall was to blame, but that he should not pay the price for what they call a one-off mistake. The inquiry blamed Dr Birchall, but now he's not to be disciplined, so they're saying no one was to blame. It makes me very angry because I'm not convinced that lessons have been learned, and I will not be letting this drop. All mental patients in the community should be monitored very closely. It was just further pain that was still left with the families of Hanan and Pauline. Diane told the Liverpool Echo newspaper that even five years after Hanan's death, she found it no easier to deal with than the day Roy and Dave, two police officers, broke the news to her that body parts found in bin bags in Liverpool were pieces of her daughter, saying, Even now I can't stop thinking, what were her last thoughts? Was she crying for me? Was she hoping that I'd protect her? 
In times of trouble, children want their mums, but I wasn't there for Hanan. He shouldn't have been on the streets. Why wasn't he locked up? How do I let my daughter walk out of this house? How do I let my sons play football? I haven't got a life anymore. I live for the children. That's it. He might hear little voices in his head, but he doesn't hear the voices I hear every night. Hi, Mum. I'm just calling to say that I'm alright. Well, she isn't alright, is she? He killed her. It hurts so much, it's like cancer eating away at me, and the hole is getting bigger and bigger, and no one can take that feeling away. Diane recalled that when the police officers broke the news about the discovery of Hanan's body, she knew that she had just an hour to tell her other three children what had happened before Hanan's name was released to the media, explaining. I turned to Roy, one of the police officers, and said, How do I tell them? He shook his head. I don't know, Diane, he said. In the end, I just had to be straight with them about what had happened. I took them into the garden one by one and broke the news. They knew Hanan used heroin, but they didn't know she was a prostitute, so I had to tell them that too. At a stroke, I felt as if I'd destroyed the childhoods. In those few minutes, they all had to grow up much too quickly. Diane told how her other children coped quietly coming to terms with Hanan's murder, although her youngest child had for a time seen a counsellor, the other two opting not to. Continuing support from Roy and Dave had helped her to restore a veneer of normality to family life, though while Diane made sure that family life continued as far as possible, Hanan's murder unavoidably led to a loss of innocence in her younger siblings. Diane continued, I'll be tortured for the rest of my life, but I'm determined not to let Mark Corner destroy their lives too. When my kids come home from school, I'm just an ordinary happy mum to them, even though I feel anything but that inside. I never warned Hanan about the dangers of drugs and prostitution when she was growing up, because I wanted to protect her from that sort of thing, but I'm determined not to be overprotective with the others. I want them to be prepared for what's out there in the big bad world. Corner, meanwhile, remained a nameless monster to the family. He is a monster. He doesn't have a name. No human being could do what he's done. I thought I wasn't normal at first. I've never had so much hate in me than I have now. Every day up to the funeral, I had to look at his picture. I don't know why. It seemed okay then, because she was back in one piece. The day I found out, all that night I couldn't sleep. Whenever I closed my eyes, he was standing over me and he had his hands around my throat and I couldn't breathe. However, as the family tried to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives in the months that followed Corner's sentencing, Diane balked when she found out the amount of compensation she would receive from the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority over Hanan's death. For to her horror, she discovered that she was only going to receive half of what other parents would receive if their daughter had been murdered. Because Hanan was a sex worker, her life was valued at around 50% of a non-sex worker, and Diane would receive just £5,000. Now, it was of course not about the money whatsoever for Diane, it was very much more the principle of the amount. Diane explained, I didn't want money because even if they paid me the whole earth, it couldn't bring Hanan back. But 
I was so upset at the £5,000. It just shows how much Hanan's life was valued. They obviously labelled Hanan. She was labelled all her life. Families of murder victims usually get £11,000, but I was told I was only getting five as Hanan was a prostitute. I was furious. I was so disgusted. I threw the money, the blood money, away. I spent it immediately buying keepsakes for members of my family. I didn't want to keep a penny of it. The Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority said in response, The Criminal Injuries Compensation Scheme requires us to take account of any unspent criminal convictions a victim may have when deciding whether to make an award of compensation. The Victims of Crime Trust furthered that it was a sad case, but the authority had to stick to the rules, and in an internal memo on the subject, a Home Office official wrote, I do know that the rules of the scheme require CICA to consider making a reduction to the award on the basis of the character of the victim. Criminal convictions can be taken into account in this process. I can understand entirely that this can appear insulting and to have no regard for Hanan and other young women involved in prostitution. It's nothing short of insulting, is it? Surely, the majority of sex workers don't go into the profession for the love of it, do they? For Diane, it was the last straw, and posthumously restoring a daughter's reputation as a human being for the same rights as everyone else, and dispelling the attitude of some that getting murdered was an occupational hazard of sex work became a mission, with her vowing to campaign against such discrimination to achieve equality in death for those like Hanan who didn't have it in life. The enraged Diane said, Prostitutes don't have names. When my daughter got involved in selling sex, she was no longer Hanan. She became just another prostitute. She never deserved that, nor do any of the other girls doing that work. She was a lovely girl. She only harmed herself. She never hurt a fly in her life. Diane was also calling on the government to establish tolerance zones where street-based sex workers could work more safely, saying, The recent Home Office review of prostitution was wrong to reject them. Now, such a scheme was eventually established in 2014 in the area of Holbeck in the city of Leeds, a city terrorised almost 40 years before by the rampage of Peter Sutcliffe becoming the only place in the country where on-street sex work was legalised, set up in a bid to make sex work safer for women who found themselves in that world, and with the aim of reducing the problems caused by street sex work to residents and businesses, to better engage with street sex workers to improve their safety and health, with a view to enabling them to exit this way of life, and to reduce the prevalence of street sex working in Leeds. Now the rules of this managed approach were regularly reviewed, but included No offence is tolerated at any time within residential areas. No offence is tolerated between 6am and 8pm. No offence is tolerated outside businesses which are operating. Drug use, trafficking, organised crime and coercion were not tolerated. Crime, public order and antisocial behaviour was not tolerated. Indecency was not tolerated at any time. It also operated a three strikes policy, which meant rule breakers would get a warning for a first breach, a caution for a second, and be arrested for a third infringement. 
it sounds fair enough, yeah? Those in favour of this managed approach said it helped support services and charities to engage with the often vulnerable women involved in sex work and increased the report and unsuccessful prosecution of crimes committed against sex workers. However, many residents of Holbeck repeatedly voiced their displeasure over time by organising demonstrations and sharing their stories, saying that the zone was bringing antisocial behaviour to the area. There were accounts given from residents of teenage schoolgirls being propositioned in the street, sexual acts being performed in people's gardens, and discarded condoms and needles being discovered. And when it was paused in March 2020, as COVID sent the country into lockdown, in reality, the buying and selling of sex continued in the area, with some women having no choice but to work with little support available to them. It was brought to an official end in June 2021, which effectively recriminalised prostitution and soliciting at all times, as was the case before the approach had been introduced seven years before. When it was scrapped, the authorities said that the scheme had led to significantly fewer sex workers operating in the area, the amount having fallen by 50% since 2017 to 2018 with an average of 22 women currently recorded soliciting a week there, as well as fewer men travelling into Holbeck looking to pay for sex, which aside from being down to the ongoing effect of the COVID pandemic, was due to the support offered by services which had helped sex workers reduce their hours or to even quit on-street sex work for good. Though the decision to scrap it was welcomed by many residents who had campaigned against it, Basis Yorkshire, the charity which works with sex workers in the area, said it was disappointing to see the pioneering and compassionate approach scrapped. Now I do think it's a good idea in principle, anything that makes these people safer in what they do, all for it. But myself, I think the idea of legalised brothels may perhaps be a better way forward. Properly regulated, you could even have door staff or security on them. Sex workers are safer still, and it would eliminate the antisocial behaviour examples that I detailed before, thus cutting down on residents moaning and protesting. It's always going to go on no matter what, out of demand and desperation. So accept that, and make it safer to do so. Surely that is just common sense, isn't it? Meanwhile, in 2005, Hanan's tragic story caught the attention of Coronation Street scriptwriter John Fay who contacted Diane to ask if he could write a play to highlight the dangers posed to other sex workers, based loosely on Hanan's life and what had happened to her, plus the debate about tolerance zones. Diane agreed and worked with a team of writers to help script the play Unprotected, which was shown at the Liverpool Everyman Theatre from March to April 2006, before being performed at the Edinburgh Festival later that year and each time to outstanding critical reviews. Both Hanan and Pauline were featured as mentioned characters, with actresses playing their respective mothers, and even a photograph of Hanan featured throughout, one taken from her in a different life, enjoying a school trip. Diane watched the play five or six times, and said later that eavesdropping on the audience's response to it was therapeutic for her. She told the Liverpool Echo, People went in thinking, prostitute, and came out thinking, Hanan. I know she's dead now, but I'm so pleased for her 
that at last she's not just a prostitute. She's got her name back. People have all sorts of misconceptions about girls who use drugs and get involved in prostitution. I just wanted them to know the truth. One lady said to me that she walked past these girls every day and now she'd seen the play, she understood what they were going through. That made me happy. People need to see that these girls are somebody's daughter. They're human beings just like everyone else. I found that a very moving statement indeed. That really touched me, that did. What a remarkable woman. Diane spoke one further time to the Liverpool Echo newspaper in December 2010 as a human interest story of the kind that newspapers do periodically with family members who've experienced losses around times like Christmas, like Mark Tilsley's mother, for instance, and said that although she didn't want Hanan to be involved in sex work, she was proud of the reasons why she chose prostitution rather than theft to pay for her drugs, explaining. Hanan never once harmed anybody in her life. That's why she decided to sell herself to buy drugs rather than mugging old people. I never thought she'd end up chopped into pieces in a bin bag. I think people found guilty of murder should face hanging. The evidence needed to be sure of a correct conviction has made massive progress in recent years, such as DNA forensics. At present, we have a system where people have committed murder Yet innocent members of the public are paying for them to be fed and looked after. It is as if they're being rewarded for killing. It makes you question what kind of society we are living in. I don't feel that I've had justice. When asked how she was, Diane replied, Now, I'm coping well. I've had to. There's been a lot of pain, tears and anxiety. Obviously, special times of the year, such as Christmas and birthdays, are never the same, but you get through them. My life was destroyed, but I fought back. I'm a stronger person. I've had to be strong. I've learned to value what really is important in life. In our family, we give each other strength. Thoughts of her are never far away, though. There was far more quotation available for researching from Diane rather than Pat, but you have to imagine that Pat and all of Pauline's family must, must have felt similar. That would be only understandable that. At the start of the tale, when I mentioned that this episode has echoes of past episodes, the ones I had specifically in mind were the recent A Boy Called Daniel, Someone's Daughter, Someone's Mum from Series 7 and Mistakes from Series 6. Mark Corner's terrible crimes rang very true to me like the actions of Stephen Wynne, in part due to the close proximity of each crime and the methodology, complete dismemberment of the victims, but also to Daniel's case and the case of Leroy Campbell due to the failings in both of those. If someone the previous year is hospitalised because he meets the criteria for doing based on his current and past behaviour, I find it unlikely that a couple of weeks on a ward and you're suddenly well enough to be released with medication can really happen. At the very least, a fixed care and supervision order with every department concerned in it fully up to speed and communicating with each other should have been firmly in place before any kind of release was even decided. Corner's history of missing outpatient appointments should have been noted, with each he missed recorded, so simply reading the notes should be enough to say, OK, this guy has a long history of no showing for appointments, 
not taking prescribed medication, but abusing cannabis, amphetamines and alcohol. He's disturbed and borderline serious risk of harming himself or others. Shall we perhaps keep him as a patient for a while longer? You think? This shouldn't have happened at all, because otherwise, if you're just going to disregard the findings and recommendations of a mental health tribunal, then what is the point of having them? I know that people can just snap. They can just get to a certain point where they go and commit carnage and you cannot watch everybody 24-7 just anticipating something like that happening. But Dr. Birchall made a serious mistake there, recommending Corner's release with disregard to the tribunal's recommendations. Corner's own family's concern and even his own diagnosis only a couple of weeks before saying that his risk was low. Now sure, his risk to others may have been low while he was complying with medication, but if he was non-compliant or was using illicit substances, then his risk to others was at least moderate or high. With Corner's reported missing of appointments also, the report found an alarming lack of communication between community psychiatric nurses and the senior house officer overseeing his outpatient's care. So it's all very well for the latter to offer these appointments in writing and, and enter into the notes a recommendation to make contact with CPNs, but you've got to actually do that or share information with them so forewarned is forearmed. As the report found a serious lack of this being done or any actions regarding this being recorded. In fact, with regards to the eight months preceding Corner's horrific actions, there is an alarming lack of any written or follow-up evidence to suggest that various departments had spoken to one another reference him, though on occasion it was recommended. Now, against the previous background of non-engagement and enhanced risk during his non-compliance, again, this appears to be an inadequate response. He may have escaped being struck off or even warned, and that's an unreal decision that, or what, eh? But Birchall should rightly have felt a sense of responsibility for the deaths of Hanan and Pauline until his own death. Yet, do you blame him solely? To me, he's a cog in an example of a flawed system that a lack of communication in had ultimately fatal and tragic consequences. A son lost for the Corner family, and sisters, daughters, and a mother herself lost, leaving holes that cannot ever be filled. Perhaps with that bit more communication, Mark Corner could have gotten the help that he so clearly needed in time to prevent his monstrous actions, and so save two families from being shattered irreparably, but which was lacking, help that came too late to save two women who in time could have beaten their own demons. An utterly tragic story all around, and please take from the tale thoughts of Hanan and Pauline and their families first and foremost. Only differing circumstances for us all separate the paths we take in life, and you or I could quite easily have found ourselves in the life that each woman led should circumstances change or have changed. Each had my utmost sympathy, and they've become two names I shall never forget. I hope that you won't either. I even named the title of the episode after the play written that focused on Hanan and Pauline, because it just felt right to title it that. And it's a play I wish I could have gone to see. I would undoubtedly have been moved by it. Because women such as Pauline and Hanan are unprotected, aren't they? 
a terribly sad story. What do you think? I would love us forever hearing your thoughts and feedback on the episode Unprotected, which you can do so in the episode thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group. Or please, by all means, get in touch through whichever of the show's social media links you want to if you wish to discuss. I'm always happy to gas wherever with you. With that, in the words of top shagger Ken Barlow, it's on to the next one now, which I hope you can join me for very soon. He doesn't say that, by the way. He doesn't strike me as the sharing type, and he sure as hell doesn't need to be in a shag tag team. And I shall catch you all very soon. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all and be safe. Thanks very much for joining me in the mog that sleeps like a log, and goodbye for now.